Hi, listeners of Pax Britannica. I'm David Cott, host of the History of Spain podcast. A podcast where I talk about the history of my motherland right from the beginning. As for now, I have covered the prehistory of Spain and the period of Roman rule. And now I'm currently telling the story of the Visigoths that dominated the Iberian Peninsula before the Muslim conquest. The rise of the Spanish Empire, the conquest of America or the Spanish Civil War are still years ahead. But I promise you that I will tell you these stories as no one has ever had. The Anglo-dominated historiography always talks proudly about the Spanish Armada, but forgets about the English Armada or the Battle of Cartagena de las Indias. A historiography that also forgets about the Spanish and Portuguese contributions to the making of the modern world and in the rise of Europe, with the Columbian exchange or the foundations of modern human rights. I will talk about all these issues and stories from a Spanish perspective, but with the required rigor and objectivity. If I awoke your curiosity, I hope you join me in my journey to explore the history of Spain. I leave it to you, Samuel. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 16. The Great Contract. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we covered the Trinity of Knaves, the three members of the Privy Council with the most power and influence over King James. We covered their careers during the first decade of the 17th century, how they served their king, and how they were rewarded. Aside from the favourites of the bedchamber, such as Robert Kerr, who we will see much more of, and the lords who ruled Scotland in James's name, such as the Earl of Dunbar, we have looked at the greater part of Jacobean government. At the centre is the king, James, with his queen, Anne, and his three surviving children, Prince Henry Frederick, Princess Elizabeth, and Prince Charles. The Privy Council was where most decisions were made, aside from those personal favours emanating from the bedchamber, and was dominated by the Trinity of Knaves. Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, Thomas Howard, Earl of Suffolk, and Henry Howard, Earl of Northampton. All good so far? Made a note of all those names? Well, be ready to cross some of them out next week. So, in 1610, James, bowing to pressure from the Privy Council and his Crown Prince, recalled Parliament for the first time in three years. This was the fourth session of the Parliament, which had so far been less useful and compliant than James had hoped. They had refused to assent to a true political union between England and Scotland, had deigned to lecture the king on his monarchical rights, criticised his spending habits, and tried to renew the war with Spain. 
As covered last week, the kingdom's finances were in terrible shape. When Salisbury took over the post of Lord Treasurer from the deceased Earl of Dorset, he found hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of debt. The king had barely curbed his spending habits, distributing crown lands and revenues with a generosity that gave the Privy Council a collective migraine, and the royal family was only becoming more expensive. Prince Henry was going to be granted his independence as Prince of Wales, which required a separate household, staff and revenues to pay for them, while Charles and Elizabeth would only be slightly behind. Meanwhile, inflation had done a number on crown revenues, with their real value dropping 40% between the deaths of Henry VIII and that of his daughter Elizabeth, while England's financial system hadn't changed in more than a century. Royal finances were still based on ordinary and extraordinary revenues. Ordinary revenues were the incomes from land, trade duties, and various feudal exactions. To live off these, the king would be living of his own. For extraordinary revenues, such as taxes and loans, a parliament had to be called and consulted. It wasn't all doom and gloom, however, and there had been some developments. With James's accession, Parliament granted him the traditional tonnage and poundage duties. As we saw last week, Salisbury had expanded this tradition to apply to many more trade goods and at higher rates. But even under Dorset, there had been changes. New contracts had been drawn up between the government and the London merchants who collected the customs duties. With the end of the war, trade increased, and such was the increase in value that these customs farmers grew incredibly wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that under Salisbury, the percentage owed to farmers was reduced, twice, first in 1607 and again in 1611. By 1608, the ordinary revenues of the king had increased by over 28% since his accession five years previously, and Salisbury was very capable at finding and pursuing outstanding debts owed to the crown, and in 1609, James agreed to have his ability to distribute lands as he saw fit restricted. Still, the king's debts were huge. Something had to be done. On the face of it, Salisbury's plan was simple. Recall Parliament, give up unpopular and inefficient feudal revenues, and in return receive a lump sum and a yearly stipend. Parliament assembled in February of 1610, and Salisbury addressed the House of Commons about his proposal, as it was the Commons, not the Lords, who voted taxation. Now, if you're driving, or doing anything important, just be aware that we're about to start talking about early modern tax policy, and the adrenaline might just start pumping. It's perfectly fine if you want to pull over to let the thrill pass. His great contract was a bargain. The king would make ten concessions in return for a lump sum of £600,000, and an annual payment of £200,000. The idea was that the lump sum would pay off the king's debts, which were increasing from interest, as well as give him a nice nest egg for emergencies, while the £200,000 stipend would supplement his own revenues. It goes without saying that this was a lot of money. One parliamentarian incorrectly judged it to be one-eighth of the entire kingdom's wealth. So what was James willing to give up in return? Well, the crown offered to be restricted by the same statute of limitations as the subjects, 
that is, the time scale for legal action to be taken. No more chasing people for fines for crimes they committed 30 years ago. Disputes over leased crown land would be much more favourable to the lessee, while the hated purveyance, the requisition of goods and materials at below market rates, would be abolished. Salisbury, as Master of Wards, offered to drastically reform the system, another source of complaint in the Commons. Simple reform was not enough, and the Commons managed to increase the offer to outright abolition of the Court of Wards in its entirety. It's interesting to look back at Salisbury's speeches during this time. He had bluntly told James that it was his extravagance which had brought the kingdom to the brink of financial ruin. His gifts and generosity and selfish luxuries had almost bankrupt the state. It was partly this argument that had led to the recall of Parliament in the first place. And yet, speaking to the Commons, Salisbury outright denied James's reputation for spending at all. It was all justified for the security of the realm, to keep the peace within the kingdoms by placating dangerous nobles or communities. Further, there had been a series of unavoidable costs in recent years. The funeral of Elizabeth, for one, and then the coronation of James. Visiting dignitaries had swarmed London for the accession, and they had to be wined and dined. Prince Henry would need to be made Prince of Wales later that year, and that certainly wouldn't be cheap. And comparisons to Elizabeth were unseemly. She had been famously tight-fisted, and her attitude caused resentment. Further, she had been a spinster, whereas James had an entire family to take care of. So you see, really, it isn't really James's fault at all. The Commons did not fall for it. Everyone knew that coins slipped through the king's hands like water, mostly to the hated Scots, and there wasn't even the excuse of a good war to justify such a high rate of taxation. Professor Croft makes a convincing point when she describes the commons as largely being landed gentry who were fully aware of what it took to run estates, to monitor ingoings and outgoings, and to live within their means. And they judge James in these terms. In terms of value, the amount demanded, £600,000, was far more than had ever been proposed during Elizabeth's reign, even at the height of wars in Ireland, the Netherlands, and at sea. James's kingdoms were at peace. The haggling between Salisbury and the Commons continued up until June, whereupon everyone took a well-earned break and enjoyed the festivities surrounding Prince Henry's investiture as Prince of Wales. In an act of political theatre, the investiture ceremony took place in Westminster, in the presence of Parliament. Henry was popular, and Salisbury hoped that a physical reminder of who this was all for would persuade the Commons to be more pliant. If this was indeed the intention, then it was only aided by shocking news from across the Channel just a few weeks prior. Henri IV, King of France, had been assassinated in a Parisian street stabbed to death as his carriage was blocked by crowds. France was now ruled by the Queen Mother, Marie de' Medici, as the now Louis XIII was not even nine years old. The instability that almost always follows a regency shortly followed. Now, 
the Wars of the Roses were beyond living memory for any members of Parliament, but the previous century was filled with examples of the dangers of unclear succession or regencies. All the more reason for the Commons, Salisbury made sure to emphasise to be thankful that the Stuarts had a healthy king, a promising heir apparent, and a spare. As Croft puts it, quote, After the installation of Prince Henry, they returned to the discussion of the great contract with increased willingness. Now, this willingness only went so far, though. The death of a neighbouring monarch and the pageantry of the investiture of Henry would only temporarily drown out the constitutional concerns of the commons. The impositions, which the Privy Council considered settled since the prosecution of John Bates, were a thorn in the side of the commons. As a reminder, these were the duties that, in the letter of the law, only applied to the trade of the Levant Company, but had been expanded by Salisbury in previous years. The commons considered them illegal, with Bates' case only applying to Mr. Bates as an individual and not as an acceptable precedent for all of England's trade. James, in one of his many blunders with Parliament, dispatched a message to the commons telling them to, in as many words, shut up about the impositions. They were within the royal prerogative, and the court of the Exchequer had settled the case. Understandably, the commons were outraged at this attack on their traditional parliamentary right to debate, and this outrage barely diminished after a follow-up message from the king, which was much more conciliatory and agreed that they were completely allowed to debate any individual imposition they liked. The commons dispatched a petition to the king, laying out their position based on constitutional and parliamentary rights and traditions and that the king could not so blatantly interfere with the private property of his subjects. James, I imagine completely exasperated by this point, replied saying he had merely been misunderstood, and he would never deign to attack property rights. Now be good chaps and focus on the great contract, won't you? They would not. For a further two weeks, the commons debated the impositions until they received a royal promise that any similar policies would be presented to Parliament for debate in the future. Salisbury was displeased, identifying the significant advantage that had just been given up. But James was happy to give them up if it meant the contract was approved. Again, in Professor Croft's words, for him, the question was purely monetary whereas to the commons it was a constitutional issue about the property rights of the subject, end quote. Dr. David Smith of Cambridge explains the difference of perspective further, quote, The commons believed that James could be solvent if only he curbed his expenditure, and they were therefore reluctant to give him more revenue until he did. James, on the other hand, thought that his need for money was so self-evident that he interpreted the Commons' actions as a deliberate bid to weaken the Crown. End quote. Aside from Salisbury, Northampton was another Privy Councillor heavily involved in this process. Normally openly haughty about the inferiority of the Commons to the Lords, during this session he moderated his language and called for cooperation between the two houses. He was, nevertheless, willing to threaten the devastating consequences if Parliament did not approve the contract. 
he told the Commons that, quote, While we hold monarchy, we must maintain the monarch, end quote. He further threatened that war could break out at any moment, considering the instability in Europe, and that the king could not be bankrupt when that happened. Regular subsidies would avoid that risk. By the time Parliament broke up for summer, the Commons had roughly agreed a single subsidy, which amounted to a mere £107,000, and the Crown was not to be compensated for the abolition of the Court of Wards. The lump sum of £600,000 was not even debated. Any hopes that Parliament would return from the break, filled with generous loyalty to the King, was dashed when MPs found their constituents greatly opposed to the idea of annual taxation and the impositions. When Parliament was recalled in October, the House of Lords was badly attended, and out of 497 members of the House of Commons, fewer than 100 MPs took their seats. Those that did attend filibustered the proceedings, filling out their time with endless, repetitive, inconclusive debates. Despite the pleading of Salisbury and his lieutenants, as well as the pressure of the king, negotiations over the great contract collapsed. This was bad enough, but then word reached James that the Commons were arranging a petition which demanded the deportation of every Scot in England. Furious, the fifth and final session of James's first English Parliament was prorogued, and then finally dissolved in February of 1611. James turned on Salisbury, ordering him to look for, quote, "...the next best means how to help my state, since ye see there is no more trust to be laid upon this rotten reed of Egypt. For your greatest error hath been that ye ever expected to draw honey out of gall." Salisbury was only briefly out of favour, though, he was simply too useful and competent to give up. So why was the contract rejected? As we've already covered numerous times, James and his Parliament were at odds with one another over his spending. He saw it as necessary, and they did not. But there were other, more practical concerns. The offers from the Crown were uneven, and did not attract a wide base of support. Wardships, while onerous and corrupt, only affected the financial elite, while relief from purveyance meant nothing to anyone outside the southeast of England. An estate in the borders, sorry, the middle shires, was only rarely going to see the king. Why did an MP from the north or his constituents particularly worry about purveyance? It's not like it was a regular occurrence for them. Likewise, the loss of wardships was unpopular at court as well, since they financially benefited from the system. Salisbury proposed removing it. On the contrary, an annual tax to fund the subsidy would presumably be levied across the realm, negatively affecting everyone. So, the great contract was rejected, the court of wards and the hated purveyance remained in force, as did the impositions, and the royal treasury was still in dire need of a cash injection. But before we say goodbye to James's first parliament, the blessed parliament as it is sometimes known, we should cover a couple of other issues brought to their attention. 
The first is the issue of nationality. The final straw in 1610 had been the attempt to deport the hated Scots, because like I promised a few episodes ago, the spectre of political union never really leaves James's reign. We mentioned the anti-nati and the post-nati in episode 10, but a refresher, they distinguished between Scots born before and after James became king of England and Ireland. The Union Commissioners had made a distinction between the two, with the post-nati judged to be fully naturalised under English common law as subjects of the English crown. This had the effect of allowing Scots born after 1603 to hold English positions and titles as if they were Englishmen. It won't come as a shock to say that the Blessed Parliament rejected this conclusion. If Scots wanted to live under English law in England, then they must embrace English law in Scotland too. Equally unsurprisingly, the Scots had absolutely no interest in doing so. In January 1608, Calvin's case was heard by the court of the King's Bench. Confusingly, the child in question was actually called Robert Colville. The court found in favour of young Robert, born after James's accession, and judged him to be eligible to hold land in England with the full rights of an Englishman. The judgment would have long-term repercussions both in the British Isles as well as in the English colonies. The result did not go down well in Parliament, and even before the Commons explicitly sought to expel the Scots, English and Scottish nobility remained relatively insulated from one another. James applied pressure and granted rewards to those of his nobility willing to marry across the border, but even with this, the aristocracy largely kept to its own. The other issue brought to Parliament, or at least the other issue I'll bring up, is that of the Isle of Man. As a Manxman, I take any opportunity I can to bring the island up, but this is actually relevant and will come up again in the future, specifically with the Civil War. For almost a century, until 1504, the aristocratic Stanley family were the kings of Man. After the death of Thomas Stanley, 1st Earl of Derby, his successors were styled Lords of Man instead. Henry VII was not particularly keen on there being anyone else in his realm calling themselves king. The Stanleys would pass the lordship on throughout the 16th century, until the 1590s. Then, the current Earl Derby and Lord of Man died suddenly, and a succession dispute arose. Beginning in 1594, the lawsuit would continue for 15 years, and I'm not going to go into it. But by the time it was resolved, William Stanley, the 6th Earl of Derby, had recovered much of his fortune and estates by smaller purchases and bargains, and had been named to the Privy Council after James's accession. It was only a private act of Parliament brought forward by the King which settled the matter. An act for assuring and establishing the Isle of Man in the name and blood of William, Earl of Derby, finally established in law that the title was Lord of Man. For the rest of the century, with the exception of during the Protectorate, the Stanley family would be styled Lord of Man and rule over the island. So, it is February 1611, and the first Parliament has been dissolved amid royalist frustration and parliamentary outrage. 
but Salisbury had a few more tricks up his sleeve to bring royal finances back into the black. With him at the helm, everything would be all right. Next week, we say goodbye to Salisbury. In poor health, and with the weight of three kingdoms on his shoulders, the relentlessly efficient bureaucrat will face an early death in our next episode. But he will not be the only loss England faces in 1612. Thank you once again to my House of Lords, who, unlike in 1610, have all been in attendance. The Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. The Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer. The Right Honourable Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence. The Right Honourable Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo. The Right Honourable Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens. The Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, and the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. Since last episode, Pax Britannica has been live for three months, and has been so far downloaded over 50,000 times, and according to Chartable, has received over 50 five-star ratings and reviews. These are incredible numbers, and I'm so, so grateful to everyone who has given the show a listen, and especially those who have recommended it to others. Without an audience, I am just, after all, rambling into a mic. I have some very exciting things lined up for the next few months, and I will be keeping everyone updated on Twitter and Facebook as details are confirmed. Thank you again to my House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>